0: afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Got a wonderful show planned. David Wheaton could be joining me in just a minute as we continue our study in the book of Genesis and how relevant it is for today. We're all the way up to chapter 39 and beyond. So I'm looking forward to that. Then Dr. Bruce Samat will be coming on the program. He's a biologist. We'll be talking about the vaccine and what we need to learn and understand about that. And then the prayer series is an hour two. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I will be talking to Carmen LaBerge and her husband, Jim. So that's what's all ahead. But David Wheaton is a regular guest and a good friend and goes way back to, uh, I think, it's been almost a year now we've been studying the book of Genesis. So it's awfully, uh, awfully nice to be back at it. David, welcome. It's good to be with you, Bill. Thanks for having me yeah. on today. Any comments on this being Ash Wednesday. You know what?
1: I didn't even realize it was Ash Wednesday <laughs> Been caught okay. up with other things. So that's, yeah. that's, that's embarrassing to say. don't, but, uh, don't worry I, about it. I, I do know that Easter is coming. So uh, 40 days from now. That's right.
0: Yeah. that's right. Yeah. All right. Let's jump back into the book of Genesis. I think uh, we're going to deal with the big topic of Joseph overcoming sexual immorality. This is going to be a big one.
1: It is, and I I think Genesis chapter 39, for your listeners out there, just remember this chapter because, you know, talk about relevance for today. Um, This chapter, as much or more than any other in Genesis, I think is very relevant for the the age we we live in. You know, the last time we talked, Bill, we were talking about Joseph having been sold by his brothers uh, into slavery in Egypt. They hated him so much, they were jealous of him and so forth, and we already talked about that, but then they Some of his brothers came up with this wicked plot to get rid of him and uh, and sell him to these slave traders. They took him down to Egypt. He probably was only 17, 18 years old at this point. You can imagine the terror of that, being sold by your own family. Uh, He gets down there, and here's where we begin Genesis 39. We talked about this some last time, and he comes down to Egypt as a slave, probably in his late teens— and the first few verses of this chapter 39 open up with things like this: The Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man. His master, who was who his name was Potiphar, he was the the captain of of Pharaoh's bodyguard. So he, you know, just fortunately you could say, or God's providence put him into this very very influential house in Egypt. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper. And it goes on and on, just repeats that theme in the opening uh, uh, verses of Genesis 39. And you see that Joseph has not been slowed down by this betrayal. He's not bitter. He's not resigned. To the contrary, he comes down there and the Lord is with him so much that he's successful and he's favored and he becomes, he goes from being a slave to the head of one of the most powerful homes in the entire country mm-hmm. of Egypt. So it just, it just goes to show that God allows difficult things to happen in our lives, but there's a purpose behind, him, behind them. He wants us to respond uh, in, in the right way, and uh, the Lord greatly was blessing Joseph, even in the midst of a lot of adversity.
0: All right, let's talk about uh, this big transition in in Joseph's story.
1: Yeah, it's really, I think it's one of the most interesting transitions uh, in Genesis, because as I mentioned, the first six verses of Genesis 39 talk about how the Lord's blessing was upon him. He's now down in Egypt and so forth. And verse six says, so he left everything he owned, this is Potiphar, left everything he owned, in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Mm -hmm. In other words, Potiphar just said, this guy is so—he's one of these guys who just got everything together. He always does the right thing. Why do I have to pay attention to anything, my finances, anything in my house? Let him take care of it. I'll just worry about what I'm eating. I mean, that's a lot of trust he's putting in this Hebrew slave that came down from the land of Canaan but very interestingly, there's this transition. It's, you know, the end of verse six, it's like verse 6b. There's hmm. this verse floating there in Genesis 39, verse 6b, the second half. It says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. I mean, well, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we get this one sentence that Joseph is good looking and the way he, his face and, and his body and so forth. And they go, Why on earth? With the Bible include such a thing like that. That's very unusual in Scripture, actually, for uh, the Scripture writers to make to make a special point of, of someone of a man, especially who's who's good looking. I mean, is is it because that Joseph is so successful that he's not only successful but he's also good looking? You know, that one of those people that everyone loves to hate. <laughs> uh, or, or uh, Bill, is it something? I think it's something more ominous, Mm -hmm. as we're going to read in the story. Something more ominous is about to take place. This is a big transition. It's like a big but. Everything's going well. Now, consider this. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. What's coming? Well, there's a warning of what's coming, that those who are successful, and now in the case of Joseph, that he's good-looking, these kind of people attract attention in life, Mm -hmm. and not all of that attention is good. You know, we often think that good looking people get all the breaks in life, and there probably is something a little bit to that. but good looks and a good body in this case of Joseph can be a liability because it attracts those with the wrong intentions and so the lesson here in this transition is that after success two things one of two things often happens either there can be we can get pride proud and, and fall. You know, pride comes before the fall, right? Mm-hmm. That happens often after we're very successful. We do something great, we're f- flying high, uh, and we, we become much more self-reliant versus God-reliant, because things are going well for us. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is uh, Satan attacks us when we're, we're doing well, because he knows our guard is going to be down. And just like Jesus, remember after his baptism, where literally the, the Father speaks from heaven, the, the Holy Spirit you know, is in the, the, in the form of a dove, flies overhead. I mean, just this huge pinnacle event in the life of Christ. What happens immediately after that, this high moment? Well, he goes into the desert to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. Or like Peter proclaiming who Christ is, saying, you are Christ, the Son of God. What happens right after that? Peter is, is, is denies Christ during, right before Christ's trial. So this is why it's necessary, Bill, for we as regular Christians mm-hmm. to be in the Word daily, because it's very easy to lose perspective on who we are, who God is, what our, what our role is in life when we have some of these high moments, or even low moments, but one of these two, you know, these two polar opposites in life. It's really important for us to be having our minds transformed on a daily basis. So even when things are going well, we don't have a tendency to to get proud, or we're ready for the attacks of the the evil one who wants to try to cut us off at the knees when we're when things are going well for us.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, dear. Let's chat about Joseph and how he responded to the temptation.
1: Yeah. So it, this next, so that there's that transitional thing. Um, that, that sentence, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It says now we know why that was stated because the next verse says. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and said, and she said to him, lie with me. And hmm. That's not very subtle. Know. Uh, verse eight, but he refused and said to his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except for you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And this really, this short paragraph, uh, I think, gives us today uh, the, the most apt and perfect example about overcoming sexual temptation. There's a model here for every Christian for how we can overcome Sexual transition, first uh, temptation. First, you have this, this direct proposition from Potiphar's wife. Okay, lie with me. We know what she's asking. Mm-hmm. The, and, and for Joseph, a, a young man, I mean, there's no work on his part necessary to gratify his flesh. This is easy gratification, mm-hmm. right? If, if he were to succumb to this, all he needs is a little bit of privacy and secrecy. And he apparently, with Potiphar's wife, he has a willing accomplice in this as well. But Look what he how he responds to your question. There's no indication in verse 8 of chapter 39 that he has any hesitation. He's the first thing he says, after she says lie with me, verse 8 next word, but he refused. In other words, would that that we respond to sexual temptation that way? It's like there's not thinking about it, there's not kind of like, "Oh, should I do this? Should I not do it?" There's no hesitation uh at all on the on the on the side of Joseph because Again, he's closely walking with the Lord. God is at the forefront of his mind. So he refuses, but then he also speaks. And what he says is really important to understand. He says, there's no one greater in this house than I. Okay, Now he's, become a, he's gone from being a slave to the head of one of the most important houses in Egypt. He knows that. And then he says, he has withheld nothing. Your, your husband, Potiphar, has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. And then he says this very critical line, how then could I do this great evil or wickedness and sin against God? You see, Joseph on the forefront of his mind is thinking he's understanding and honoring God's design for marriage and sex. He knows it on the top of his head. Mm -hmm. He's not trying to make rationalizations. He understands God's purpose, God's design for marriage, is to be between one man and one woman. There's no other coupling arrangements uh, within within marriage that God has established outside of that one. And He knew that He wasn't part of that coupling arrangement with Potiphar's wife because that He wasn't her wife, her husband. Mm-hmm. So He understood God's design for marriage: one man, one woman. That's it. And then He also understood that sex is only to be within that particular design of marriage. And so that so he knew that design, but then the line he uses, how then could I do this great wickedness, this great sin and this great evil and sin against God, there's the motivation be behind it. He didn't just know the principle of what marriage and, and sex should be, but he also knew why. He knew who he would be offending if he if he if he had sex with Potiphar's wife. Mm-hmm. He didn't think he, he his first reaction. Bill was not. Oh, you know what? Uh, I'll get caught by Potiphar. Right. Uh, I could lose my job. Uh, you might get pregnant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could get a sexually transmitted. He didn't bring up all the the quote unquote you know earthly consequences that happen for doing this kind of thing. It was way way above and beyond that. In other words, Joseph feared God, and he loved God more than he feared any of the consequences of getting caught and more than he loved the idea of pleasing himself. And that is ultimately the decision each and every one of us faces when we face temptation. Are we going to fear and love God more, or are we going to fear the consequences and love pleasure more, pleasing ourselves more? And Joseph knew, and this is why he's the example for every one of us, every Christian out there, that it's more important to honor God than please ourselves. That's how he overcame this Mm -hmm.
0: temptation. It's crystal clear that... It is a great evil and a sin against God. That's right. He he Again, he was much
1: more concerned yep. about sinning against God than he was even against Potiphar's right, wife or right. Potiphar himself.
0: He had it in the right order. All right, let's take a little break. David Wheaton is my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org org. learn more about David and find out what's going on in his world. He hosts a program on Saturday mornings, and it's not to be missed. Uh, thechristianworldview.org. We'll be right back in just a minute. is my guest for talking about Genesis. As we go through the book, we're having a great time going through Genesis. I've loved it. I know you have too, because I've heard from you. So thank you. Um, So we're at a big uh, place in chapter 39, David, where Joseph responds fantastically to temptation. But why is reasoning or words not enough with sexual temptation? (laughs)
1: That's right. In other words, you think, what a hero here. He just refuses, and this is going to be all done with. Well, no, we're only about halfway through the story uh, with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And it goes on to say in Genesis 39, verse 10, as she, Potiphar's wife, spoke to Joseph day after day. Okay, Mm -hmm. this isn't just one time. This is day after day. Joseph did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Uh, Now, it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. That's interesting. No one's around. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And this time it has an exclamation point. The first time was, lie with me, period. Mm -hmm. This time, after she's been refused a couple of times, now it's, lie with me, exclamation point. And the next sentence says, and he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. So. In other words, verse 10, the lesson here for us is resisting or overcoming temptation one time is not going to be good enough, because Satan is always trying to to bring us down. It's it's relentless. It's a relentless attack on us to compromise our walk with God. She spoke to Joseph day after day, enticing him. She was, you could say, they would say that she was madly in love with him. Well, Mm -hmm. actually, she was madly in lust with this young man. Mm -hmm. But then in verse 11, it says... She says, this temptation, after it's been going on day after day, it's about to hit critical mass here. (laughs) The the propositions she's been making and the persuasion isn't getting her what she wants. And so now she's going to take it up a level, and she's going to be even more forceful. So she grabs him. And and notice the, the environment here. He's at work. This is his workplace. No one is around. Sexual sin always ignites, typically ignites. In private situations, it's always at its core deceitful. We don't want people to see it. And so that's what takes place here. They're private, and it says right here in this passage, no, no one of the house is around. She's taking the opportunity. And this time, Joseph realizes that just words and kind of reasoning with her is not going to work. You know, not, It's not going to work again to say, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? Mm-hmm. That may have turned her off the first time, but this time, she was gonna, he was going to have to take it to a different level. She obvi- now, he obviously, now, she obviously wasn't going to be able to rape him because she was a woman and he was much stronger than she is. So why does Joseph flee and go outside? Why does it say that? He fled, he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. Well, the, the reason he, he did that is he knows the power of sexual temptation. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, it says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. It's the only sin or only temptation in Scripture that I'm aware of, Bill, that we're not to confront, but we're actually to flee from. And I think that's very interesting. Why is that the only temptation, sexual immorality, the only one we are to flee from rather than confront? And I think the answer to that question is that because it's so powerful that we can't stay in that environment, and be able to kind of individually kind of pull ourselves up by the bootstraps mm-hmm. and be able to overcome it. It's the only sin. We have to literally get out of there. Mm. And so that's exactly what Joseph did. He fled, and he went outside. So again, the lesson here, the relevance for us today, Bill, is overcoming sexual temptation requires that we realize that God is watching and weighing us all the time. We We understand that we're sinning against our Creator. Joseph understood that. We already talked about that. But number two here, it requires some action on our part. It requires we we flee it. We leave the room. We get out of the car. We make no provision for the flesh. We discard the, the computer or the phone. Whatever it is that we need to flee, this is the one temptation we need to get out of there about.
0: Yeah, really powerful, David. And a listener just jumped in saying, Amen, Bill and David that's not in the forefront of Christianity these days. We need to focus more on how our actions grieve or honor God.
1: And that's exactly true. I, I, I don't have the statistics in front of me, mm-hmm. but the way that Christians, professing Christians, live morally now within the evangelical church today, um, you know, living together— uh, different things going on, the 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 standards of God's Word either aren't being taught or being ignored, or pe- maybe just younger people don't know them mm-hmm. uh, or disregarding them. But God hasn't changed. Jesus Christ is the same yet today, yesterday, today, and forever. And so these things that Joseph was facing back in, what was it, I don't know, 4,000, 4, 5,000 years ago, we're worshiping the same God. We serve the same God today. We Mm -hmm. need to respond the same way as Joseph.
0: Yeah. Why wasn't uh, Joseph blessed for doing the right thing? (laughs) Yeah.
1: You would think, wow, what a hero Joseph is. He just overcame it. He did it. He's our model. Well, what happens to him? Well, all of a sudden, he uh, doesn't get a a ticker tape parade for overcoming sexual morality. He gets thrown in jail. The rejection of Potiphar's wife changes her mind about him in a split second, and it turns into revenge. It says, "...when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he, my husband, blames the husband, has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to lie with me, direct lie, and I screamed, direct lie. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, another lie, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside." And then when her master came home, she spoke to her husband and said, this Hebrew slave whom you brought to us, again, blaming your husband, right. came into me to make sport of me. In other words, lie, 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 lie. Mm-hmm. And then when Potiphar heard these words of his wife, uh, his anger burned. It says, verse 20, master, uh, Joseph's master Potiphar took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. So his wife is denied. She's out for revenge. She lies repeatedly about what happened. She blames her husband. She likely resented her husband, Potiphar. Maybe he was too busy with work. He had too important of a job. Maybe he didn't treat her as well as he should. Who knows what the reason was? But Potiphar doesn't even investigate, just believes his wife, throws Joseph in jail. And uh, this this is really, I think, the relevance here is this is what Christians can even expect for doing right in life. Don't expect that you're going to be blessed for doing the right thing all the time. Joseph was sent to Egypt unjustly, and now he's jailed unjustly.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And
1: he's not given a parade or or interviewed on TV as a hero for overcoming temptation. He's thrown into jail.
0: Yeah, this is like something you could have watched on TV last night.
1: Very much. Yeah. That's why this chapter, I think, is so poignant
0: and so Mm -hmm. relevant for today. So um, how does the end of the chapter kind of mirror the beginning?
1: Yeah, you remember at the beginning of the chapter, Bill, it said just how how blessed Joseph was. Mm -hmm. He comes and everything, he succeeds and he gets put to the top of the house and he's in charge of everything. Yeah. The end of the same chapter exactly ends the same way, except he's in a different environment. Now he's in jail. Yeah. And it says, uh, the Lord was with Joseph. Again, just like the beginning of the chapter, the Lord was with Joseph in jail and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the jailer. And the jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who are in the jail. I mean, what is it about this Joseph character that <laughs> wherever he goes, they all of a sudden recognize yeah. the leadership, the character, the integrity, and they just always put him in charge. That's... And the point is that the theme of this book of Genesis is that God still, for the ones that love him, it's, it's Romans eight twenty eight. God causes all things to work together for good, even the hard things, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And that's what we see in Genesis 39.
0: Yeah. David, fantastic. Thank you so much. This is so good, so interesting, and you delivered it so beautifully once again.
1: Well, to God be the glory, what a powerful chapter. It's been very meaningful in my own life, Bill, and uh, glad to share it today.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Have a wonderful uh, week, and I'll talk to you next time.
1: All right, you too, Bill. Thank you.
0: You bet. David Wheaton has been my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David, learn about his weekend show. Take a short break. When we come back, Dr. Bruce... That will be with me.
2: It's the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started.
0: If you're like me, and I know I am, I like science, and I always am looking forward to learning more about science. And today, my guest is Dr. Bruce Samat. He is a professor of biology here at the University of Northwestern, but he's got a lot of credentials, and he's got uh, a lot
2: to teach us so we can learn. So, Bruce, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Bill. Uh, It's fun to be here. I haven't been on the air for some time. Okay. And uh, it's always fun to uh, address. Those who are out there and want to listen. Absolutely. I think there's
0: a lot of people that like science. I was out for a walk uh, today and I saw a sign. I think, people, I think we like slogans nowadays because the sign said, what we believe. And the first thing was, science is real. Is science real? <laughs> well, it's
2: really interesting. Because <laughs> um, you have data mm-hmm. and then you have interpretation of the data. So we have a wide variety of interpretations. Mm-hmm. And we say we have facts. Well, then we, have, we we interpret those facts based on our own viewpoint. I have a slogan I use in my class. Um, I said, what I find out there in the world is that most people have this opinion. Don't bother me with the facts. I already know what I know. Yeah. So we come in with our own prejudice. We come in with our own viewpoint. And then facts can be thrown at you. And we will turn those facts to fit our paradigm and what we believe. Mm-hmm. So science is science, but we all interpret the science. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the hot topics
0: today, of course, is COVID-19. And is it interesting to you at all that when a virus originates, it usually, it's uh, given the name of, of which it originates from, unlike this one.
2: Yes, it does. Um, we have the Ebola, which came from near the Ebola River and uh, in Africa. Uh, so we do those kind of things, but this one was changed, actually. It uh was being originally talked about the town in China where it came from, but then politics as they are these days, that got modified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But aren't there a big family of coronaviruses out there? Yeah. Uh, in fact, our annual flu is another corona, and, gee, we get that every year. And, by the way, the CDC is now saying that our flu shot, which the one we're getting now for flu, which is made from last year's viral uh, antigens, uh, the proteins in that flu, that it's about 25% effective. Wow. But 25 is better than zero. So, yeah, a flu shot is good. But you don't have a high expectation because viruses tend to mutate. And the important part about a mutation in the DNA is that for viruses, they mutate and have changes in their DNA that code for the outer part of the virus, the part that our system would see and make antibodies against. So we look at the outer shell of it. They call it the capsid. Right? Those have proteins sticking out. And when our immune system sees that, we make a lot of antibodies and we kill it. But if they mutate and they're different this year, well, then our antibodies are starting from scratch and we get sick again until we fight it off. Mm-hmm. We're hoping that the COVID doesn't mutate so much. Yeah. On the other hand, we already have some new strains coming in, which means more mutations of the outer proteins. We'll see. And one of the strains is from Brazil. Do I have that right? Yes. Um, that's an interesting one, and that's spreading around. There's one that said it came from England. Well, maybe it came from England, maybe it got imported into England, but the, the point is that seems to be the, a spot where there was a mutation. So if you're having two, and I heard of one, maybe South Africa, but if there's two or three places already that are showing mutations, we're in this for the longer haul, not the shorter haul. Mm-hmm. For instance, if we had we had hepatitis, we take hepat- three hepatitis shots over a couple-month period, and we think we're immune for the rest of our lives, which says that virus, which is not a corona, that virus doesn't mutate so much to make new proteins in the outer shell. Mm-hmm. So our antibodies are always there. We, once you had that immunizations, um, you're, you're making enough antibodies so that if someone had hepatitis and sneezed it on you, You'd be killing it off in the next few hours, and you'd never know you had the virus in. Mm. That's what an immunization does for you. But we don't know that about coronaviruses as a family now, that they tend to want to change. Not a good thing. Yeah. Now, Bruce, before we go back to coronavirus
0: uh, 19, COVID-19, I do want to ask about the flu season this year. It's Mm -hmm. been mild. It's been low. What's been the result of us wearing uh, masks and washing our hands and not being out in public?
2: That's a good question because we cannot measure this flu season from any other flu season because we weren't wearing all these and having all these procedures of staying away from each other and and resisting being close to someone who is sneezing and coughing. Uh, In my classes, everybody's six feet, eight feet apart, and they're all wearing masks, and they're sneezing into their mask. So uh, that has to be very important to blunt that coron- that particular coronavirus. So that tells us that it's also working for the COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does blunt it. It doesn't prevent it totally, but it's a, it blunts it well.
0: Yeah. I've yeah. got all kinds of questions for COVID-19, but I still have another question about mask wearing. All right, let's say I'm in my kitchen and I'm making a sandwich and I drop a piece of cheese on the floor. Do I have five seconds to pick it up and eat it? <laughs>
2: Or is it instantly horrible and contaminated? <laughs> all right. Yeah, I tell you, the first question is, why? what's wrong with your, your, your fingers that you drop things? Well, on I'm the, trying uh, to pile yeah. too much cheese on the sandwich. Oh, that's what it yeah. is. Okay, so I'm
0: piling, 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 and yeah. all of a sudden,
2: oh, one falls off. So you're and from Wisconsin. You're from Wisconsin. Of course. You're a cheese well, no, I'm not. But yeah. I mean, okay. I still
0: see this delicious piece yes. of Munster <laughs> yeah. cheese yeah. or maybe Colby Jack or mm-hmm. something on the floor, and I'm thinking... Yes. Do I have five seconds, or is it instantly contaminated? It's instantly contaminated. Okay. Yeah. Now follow the follow the dots here. Uh, I hear that if you touch your mask,
2: it's been contaminated. Probably not a big deal, because why? Because the virus is now on the outside. It's not going to instantly just come in on you if it was on your fingers and now on your mask. Typically, you're going to have to get droplets of someone's saliva. In a cough or a sneeze, and it's going to be in residence there. Okay, the amount that would be on your fingers would be minimal. Now, if you were to start start rubbing your eyes and put the virus into your eyes, you are like well, let's not talk about picking your nose. But if you're trying to get into your into your body with these, with your fingers, and eyes are the main uh, location for entry because those tear ducts are nice and neutral, mm-hmm. and um, it goes right into the tear ducts. So, yes. It's the same thing with any cold virus. You cover your eyes. You, don't, you, you, you turn away from someone who is coughing or sneezing. Mm-hmm. And you would wash your hands if someone if you were handling somebody. You've got the kids. You've got the snot of the children. You wash your hands. Right. Um, same thing with this. Uh, but, but people don't get a cold virus from touching their clothing, et cetera. Yeah. Now, is it possible—now, uh, that's another hypothetical— If you had a lot of virus, for some reason, your hands were really contaminated and you touched your mask and now you're inhaling, could viruses come through the air dry uh, through that fiber? Uh, That's why they're saying, not so easily, by the way, because that's why they're saying you can't have just a thin nylon something. It's got to be some layers there Mm -hmm. so that it does get trapped in there. And that's why they're also saying you should probably wash your mask regularly. You know, I'm... I'm thinking every couple days, every third day, every couple days. Some people wash yeah. it every day. Switch switch switch. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd say at least every two or three days. Depends on where you were and how many people you were around and yeah. But you know, I don't I don't wash it that often. <laughs> yeah,
0: mine stays in kind of the uh place where I put my coffee. Yeah, I see. A little a coffee holder and then I pull it out and Sometimes it serves as a napkin and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> With
2: the cheese. Yeah. With the cheese, yes. By the way, when you pick the cheese up, rinse it under the faucet, would you? Does that make a difference uh, or yeah. does you just yeah. throw it away? No, no. Well, no throw it away. Never throw cheese away. Okay. But rinse it under the faucet and you're back you're worried about bacteria on the floor exactly. more than anything. Exactly. And uh, you're not going to get a big load of bacteria unless you're in a barn. So therefore, but it's a good idea to rinse it. Okay. Yeah then put it in the sandwich.
0: You know very little about my kitchen. Okay. Okay.
2: Um, (laughs) Let's go back to the vaccine
0: and the COVID-19 and the vaccine and the developments we've had so far and how encouraged are you
2: with what we're looking at and what should we be concerned about? Well, as it turns out right now, I'm helping the nursing department uh, put a a draft together of do's and don'ts and what's what's real, what's not, uh, what's important. Um, So I'm Keeping my fingers on the pulse of the uh, Center of Disease Control, the CDC in Atlanta, as well as what's coming out of that wonderful place called Washington, D.C., um, as well as the state of Minnesota, and others who are experts in the area. Um, one of those um, is now works for the University of Minnesota, but he was our former uh, chief epidemiologist in Minnesota. Is that Mike Ostroholm? Uh, Mike Ostroholm. Mm-hmm. Actually, he and I had a course together at the University of Minnesota. When we were in our doctoral programs, that's where we first met, and then we went our separate ways. Um, so, and Mike is is a, is an expert on all this, and has been for many years, everything to do with epidemiology. So, I'm putting together all what they're doing, what they're saying, and and then also looking at all the quote blog sites of people who are putting out alarms. Um, most of those alarms, if if not all of them, nearly all of them, are are have no no boundaries around them. And there's no basis for them. So they just throw things out there. Uh, I've heard things like, this is interesting, that the the um, 5G networks came out about the same time as the COVID. So therefore, the COVID viruses are following the radio waves through the air on 5G. Well, that's interesting. That can't happen. But people just make an equation and then come to a conclusion. See? Well, it just turns out that somewhere in this country, I won't say which state, a couple of folks went out there and knocked over a couple of towers. Then they found out later there were 4G towers. Oops. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bummer. Yeah. But, but that's the kind of thing. People will react and run with something with no actual foundation. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's too bad. Now, the next thing is, you know, the conspiracy of the government put something in the serum that they're giving us and they're going to be able to track us. Well, that would have to be a microchip, and that'll clog up your heart, and you're dead. Mm-hmm. So that's not going to happen. Um, we don't have that kind of technology for that. Um, but if you want to talk about microchips, well, then that's going to already being placed under the skin and the arm and the hand, and companies are already requiring that for some of their employees, and that's how you get in. You don't have a, a card with your f- face on anymore. You just scan the chip under your skin. There's a mark of something there. That's creepy. That is creepy. Yeah. And that's in the military and it's in some private companies. And that's how they're exploring how well this works. Does it bother the skin? You know, how do you tolerate it? Is it readily readable? And how much information can you put on there? Oh, yeah. This is that's the one I'd be concerned about, not what's in the serum. Now, the serum has adjuvants in it, something that helps them to absorb into the skin and absorb slowly because you don't want this you don't mainline it in your, in your vein. Mm-hmm. You put it in the arm. Now, that people can have different reactions to that where you release histamine and you start swelling up. And I've seen pictures of people with a large patch and others with typically you just have a little redness like any injection. But what's really important is if you have any kind of reaction in your throat and you can't breathe well. So that's why when you have an injection, they keep you to sit there for 15 to 30 minutes just in case you had more of an allergic reaction. They can, they can intercept that. Uh, One person was writing about how they needed an EpiPen, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's a, it's a major antihistamine. Yeah. 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 But that's rare. Mm -hmm. And if you have had that before, if you do, if you are a EpiPen carrying person, you want to maybe think about maybe not having the immunization Mm -hmm. just because you're the kind of person who overreacts in your body. All
0: right, we'll take a little break. Dr. Bruce Samat is my guest. We'll uh, be back in 90 seconds. I'm Doc, back with Dr. Bruce Samat. What kind of name is Samat? I was looking at your name going, what kind of name
2: is that? It's a good name. Thanks. Oh, it's a great name. Yeah, yeah. Is there a it's, lot
0: of other Samats in the family?
2: Um, not and, that many. Really? I, yeah. I have three children and, okay. and I have nine
0: grandchildren. But you have relatives. That well, there's you, a few. I, yeah. If you look at the genealogy, it goes back a ways, doesn't it?
2: It does. It goes, yeah. Yeah. Way, I think Neanderthal. I mean, way back, Neanderthal. right? Neanderthal. Yeah. Yeah. Way back. Yeah. Um, we we're one of the smartest Neanderthals on the planet. That is good to know. Yeah. What, uh, what ethnic background is that? Eastern European. Okay. I like that. In the Balkan countries they all came from. Yeah. Around 1900. That makes
0: sense. And
2: uh, made a living here. Yeah. Good for you. So let's talk about
0: the transmission. And I think as a a professor here at the University of Northwestern, you saw a bunch of students leave for Christmas vacation, right? And then we were told that there would be uh, a spread as a result of that. And when they returned, what was the result?
2: Yeah. Well, that was... That was uh, the predecessor to that was Thanksgiving break, yes. shorter, but people went home and there was a rise after Thanksgiving. So they attributed that to you went home, you didn't wear a mask so much as you were as you had to in your university, um, but now you came back with it. All right, and that so there was this rise and they attributed it to that that there was more students doing this. So then after Christmas when you have three weeks off, well now it's just going to be. That much worse is what the state and the federal level warned us about. So be ready, hospitals be ready. They're gonna, it's going to spread like wildfire. While well, over Christmas things were coming down, lo and behold, and after Christmas when all the students came back and we started July, I'm sorry, we started January 11. Uh, this the state level here in Minnesota, which we have one of the highest state incidences in, in, in the whole country. It just continues to come down. So they didn't come back with it. Mm-hmm. So what happened back in the families? Well, they weren't. They didn't have it back in the family. They weren't spreading it. And they're with their friends back home. And it wasn't being spread. And now they come back, and we are now back at our lowest. Nice. One of the lowest le- uh, levels for this le- whole year. And nobody says why, because nobody knows why. So it doesn't, we don't know a lot about this transmission. We know that person-to-person, with the, with the moisture coming out of your mouth, can do it, but there's just too many variables apparently. Mm-hmm. So we're just basking in, in the in the joy that there was no resurgence, and in fact, it didn't get spread. But we don't know why. Mm-hmm. So there's more to learn here. Um, the vaccine will help bring that down. But gee, it's already going down better for us. But it doesn't mean we're not going to have another resurgence. See? Mm-hmm. We've had this other topsy-turvy, looks like the stock market. First is down, then it's up, then it's down. Yeah, So we don't understand it very well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So anyway, um, back to where we kind of left off. Um, so I've been putting my fingers on the pulse of what the uh, CDC is saying and other experts in the area uh, based on the data. I don't like just other opinions. I don't care what what degrees they have. I want to know why are they saying this and um, based on what data. So part of this is that uh, is number one, what's causing, what are the numbers and and how, uh, how many deaths are there per capita and how many cases are there per capita? Well, I know that in my own family and students and friends, they don't all call in and say, I have a positive test or I'm going to go in and get a, a test and it's positive. Because if you get a positive test, the state will find out. The hospitals have to tell. But people are sitting at home sick and thinking, well, it's probably covid mm-hmm. so they do their quarantine then they come back and they, the state never finds out mm-hmm. well how many cases are that out there in our country in our state a lot yeah we have no idea yeah. and there's a lot of just take care of self and some people don't want to go in and get tested they just if they're not need a hospital they just ride it out and they don't want the state to know so uh, i managed to get covid in august uh, at my granddaughter's wedding oops <laughs> some of her friends, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. brought it with them and, and spread it with joy. Well, I had it for two and a half days and mild. And by the next day I was on the roof cleaning the gutters. Okay. It was just nothing there. And I was appreciative of that. Indeed. Yeah. But the point is, um, I did my quarantine. Uh, I might still be immune. I don't know. Nobody knows how long you're immune. So, you know, I, it might be fine for a while, but we think it's probably going to wear off. We don't know that. So here comes the crux. I had the virus. I made antibodies. I'm immune, but we don't know how long we'll make antibodies. But now we have an immunization that that triggers our immune system to make antibodies. But we don't know how long that's going to last. Mm-hmm. So it might be we're going to have an annual shot, just like the flu. But maybe it'll be better than 25% of the annual flu we're hoping that it's going to be 95 percent like it is now each year if that's the case we'll be sitting pretty well with an update like that Mm -hmm. but that's to be seen the the coronaviruses are a horse of a different color they're just something that we're learning about Mm -hmm.
0: Bruce, i don't often have a phd scientist in my studio with a necktie on so i do have some other questions to ask (laughs) is that okay it's a nice necktie it's a beautiful necktie. you want to borrow it no okay um, but I want to talk about God's creation and how does science support
2: that? Well, <clears throat> I also keep my fingers on the pulse of all the atheistic websites and what the proclamations are. And what I find in a nutshell is everything that's attributed to the miracles of God are now on the atheistic side attributed to the miracles of nature. Mm. So nature can create anything, can change anything. Um it can go forward, it can go backward, it can go sideways, it's just omnipotent. So whatever the data is, we think something's changing into something, oh that's evolution. Then we say, well, nothing's changing here. Over all these years, long periods of time, nothing's changing. Well, that's evolution. Well, things look like in, in this case with the fossil record is going backwards. Well, that's evolution. Uh some things are are splitting apart. Well, that's divergence. Well, it looks like some things are coming together. Well, that's convergence. <laughs> so a term is given for the miracles of this, because that's what they are. The fossil record does not support evolution. It does not support, it shows what they call stasis, non-change. So they invented some new terms, punctuated equilibrium, to say, well, gee, evolution can go real fast and then stop. See, It can do anything it wants. Well, it's now omnipotent, not omniscient, but omnipotent. It can do all things. So then they bash... Christianity is saying, well, you say God can do anything. Wait a minute. You just said nature can do anything. Right. What about the matter of of all of nature? Where did the matter come from? God is always was. Well, that boggles my mind. Always is. I can't fathom that either. But what about matter? And you're saying nature made the matter. Well, how did nature make the matter? Well, now the blog sites say, actually, nature just always was. Hmm. Well, wait a minute. But you won't accept God always was, but you can accept all the matter always Mm -hmm. was. And then it it rearranged itself, see, under its own unintelligent design, which brings in another story. So um, when I'm teaching science, I'm trying to teach, here's what the limitations of an atheistic viewpoint are. Here's the limitations of saying nature is all-powerful. The data does not support all-powerful. All of the data says nature likes to go to the lowest energy point. It's called entropy. It doesn't want to organize into anything. Yet, here we are, all these organisms, plant, animal, kingdoms, extremely organized, extremely complex, under multiple levels of control, and perfect. And that came out of nothing. Or as one atheistic scientist said, we have no idea how evolution works, but we know it's true because the alternative is unthinkable. Hmm. Interesting. The hostility towards God is so intense that they
0: are going to push him out of the conversation yes. entirely,
2: and also pushing him out of uh the workplace, pushing him out of education, pushing him out of you know the marketplace. Um, I have seen on these on these various sites the in, intention is to remove anything about God everywhere and, it, and make sure that it doesn't get out of the church. So then what's the next step? Well, now you dissolve the church. It's Mm -hmm. just shrink it back, shrink it back, shrink it back. Don't talk about it. Don't let it be talked about until it's isolated. See, Then it has the least amount of influence. That's the whole point.
0: Well, the people that celebrate nature, because nature is incredibly violent.
2: Hmm.
0: I mean, isn't it
2: unbelievably violent? Well, Darwin uh, actually capitalized on that. And survival of the fittest mm-hmm. concept, and there is out there in nature where depends on the resources and etc, and we see humans getting very violent when the resources are thin, oh yeah, yeah, so we don't have enough water, well, we might have to kill each other to get the water see? Yeah. and 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 that's expected to be the next big uh the next uh big uh problem on this planet is that we're going to run out of water, fresh water, see so that's why many places are doing desalination plants. Of the ocean, trying to get the salt out and, and purify the water. Uh, it's going. It's like going from gas to electric, so we don't pollute. Now we're going to have to figure out how to use the ocean water because climate change, and that is happening. We do get climate change. It happens. It happens a lot. Even historically, we can go back and look at. There have been some big, violent climate changes, um, and that's another. That's that, that's a topic. Another story that we have um, a variety of of physical evidence that says there was a, a, ice age that happened very quickly, not over a long period of time. So that means there was a fast change in climate. Mm-hmm. Wow! So I don't know. That's uh so that, that, that kind of thing is going to, is going to push us to take care of resources better, but, but we have to be pushed. That's how we do. We use them until we start losing them. Then we get desperate. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, yes, it, nature is violent out there depending on the resources. Yeah. When there's lots of resources, the animals leave, leave each other alone. That's so interesting. Yeah. I watch them in my backyard. Yeah. They're called squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're crazy. And, yeah. And, 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 the, and the wild turkeys. Yeah. Uh, they are crazy, the wild turkeys. For sure. Yeah.
0: Well, Bruce, it's so awfully nice to have you in studio. Thank you so much for coming in and doing the show. It was fun. It has been a lot of fun. Dr. Bruce Samat has been my guest. He is a uh, biology professor here at the University of Northwestern, and a guest I would like back real soon. We'll take a short break, and we'll be back with lots more in just a minute.